0: Richard Osler welcome to Mormon discussion how are you today I'm doing good bill great great glad to have you on I'm I'm just it's one of these things I'm I'm so into Mormon social media I'm I'm plugging away on Facebook I'm reading discussion blogs and forums and and I keep seeing your name and your face popping up and I thought it would be a lot of fun to sit down with you and to talk and we'll get a little bit into some of the things that uh, that you've been in the, the blogger knackle as they call it, or the public eye within Mormonism recently, but I thought I would at least start off by giving you a chance to kind of introduce yourself and maybe just give us a little bit of background on, on who you are before we kind of jump into that.
1: Sure. Thanks, Bill. Uh, my name is Richard Osler. I'm 55 years old, uh, married to my wife, Sheila Osler. We're the parents of six kids and, um, two are married. We have one grandson named Charlie. Uh, my wife is from Texas and a BYU fan. We met at BYU I was there at graduate school. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Um went to a school in Salt Lake City, and we met at BYU. Um, and we've had, you know, great marriage. I got married at 28. She was 27. We met at BYU, and we have a wonderful marriage. We're different. I'm a little politically left. She's a little politically right, and that's really healthy for our kids to have different points of view. And it's been a healthy part of our marriage to sometimes have – um Intellectual differences at time. love my wife, and I love my family. I'm grateful for them
0: Excellent glad to, again to, to have you on the podcast um, Your picture I've seen so many times lately in post on Facebook and and recently there was a blog post that Jana Reese um, Wrote that was titled what one bishop offers Mormons who don't quote Know unquote the church is true and I thought this was just a beautiful article. You you just recently finished up your service as the bishop of, uh, was it a young single adult ward? Yes. Or singles ward? Okay. Yeah,
1: I was called to a ward in Salt Lake City, not in my footprint. I live near Cottonwood High School. I was called to a ward in the West Valley Magna area. Um, Singles ward bishops, as most know, served for about three years, and I served for three years and was released yesterday, September 18th, and grateful for the chance to serve there.
0: Yeah, and as as one who's also served as a bishop, um I, I know the feeling is mutual cuz we were talking a little bit before this interview, but but just want to say how much I appreciate you and, and your service. Um it's not an easy calling and and I I got to imagine that that a young single adult ward has got to have kind of its own issues and blessings that come with it. Maybe maybe take a moment and just share with us how for the listener who's never been in a ward with that kind of dynamic, maybe what sets it apart or what makes it different?
1: Um, Sure, Bill. A young single adult ward, YSA ward, is men and women age 18 to 31. Um, They can be there by choice, or some, um, their records are kind of sent over by a resident ward. Um, They're all single, and they're wonderful kids. Um, My ward did not have um, any apartments or any students, so there was no sort of self-selection hurdle to get in the ward. All of my kids lived at home. And, and with that came a range of needs and wants and faith journeys. Um, I met some of the best kids I've ever met in my life. And at the same time, there's significant socioeconomic needs in that part of the city. So it was kind of a pretty broad assignment, sometimes an inner city assignment for some of the needs I saw, and sometimes a p- traditional YSA assignment. One of the things that, uh, back to your question about social media is um i'm different in the sense i've really gotten involved in social media it kind of started with my son who was a high school kid and got me on twitter because i was just trying to follow all my high friends, high school friends and i think a unique part of my ministry was the ability to connect with all the kids on my roles through facebook um, when i was first called i added and found all of them on facebook and added them and that created a sort of a two-part ministry where you could minister to the kids that came to church you got to know but you could also minister to the kids through your facebook messages that they would see on their facebook feeds and it created a tone um my tone that you reference on facebook that was pretty loving and accepting and and was part of a way to really get these kids to connect with me and be willing to open up and trust me and so that was part of my ministry also was the effectiveness of social media to connect with these kids some of these kids didn't even know Who their bishop was, um, or or hadn't been in the church for a long time.
0: Right, right. I'll tell you. Preparing for this interview, one of the things I did was stalk you on Facebook. (laughs) Good. And and as I looked through your Facebook page, one of the things I was amazed by was all of the 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 marriage pictures of of obviously weddings or marriages you had performed, and just the just you could just feel looking at the photos the love that. That these folks have for you. I, I just, I wish I was in your ward and could have sat through those three years and just watched all the relationships that you built. Um, it, it's very apparent looking at the blog, looking at your Facebook page, watching some of the comments that you make. You mentioned your ministry. It's obviously you're coming from a place of love and concern and, and inclusiveness. And I just want to say thank you for that.
1: Thank you, Bill. Um, and thanks for doing just you know, some homework for this interview to try to understand me. I really appreciates that and takes a lot of time to do that. I think the marriages are probably a sign of just the broad connection I felt I had with the kids. Obviously, the kids that are going to the temple, I'm not performing those marriages, but there's a lot of kids that need an adult to just love them and walk with them on any road they're on and, and celebrate their marriage. Marriage, is, everybody knows, is a day of celebration, and there's a lot of right ways to do that. And um the ones you saw there were civil marriages I had the honor to perform and some ring ceremonies. And those are just great days of celebration where a family can come together and support wonderful son and daughter being married. So it was easy in my heart to just love those kids and celebrate those days.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent. I, I do want to ask you a little bit about your growing up. It, it it and I want to get into this as we get through the interview, but it's obvious that you've gone through some what I would call a faith transition. And and it, it becomes apparent in the way that you are talking about loving those with doubts and having concern for them, loving those who are LGBT and having concern for them. But I want to start off, let's go back to your growing up. One of the things I'm always interested in when I'm having conversations with people who recognize that that the world and the church specifically has some nuance to it, I always want to know how rigid or... Or unorthodox their upbringing was and, and maybe just walk us through kind of what it was like to grow up in your household. Um, thanks, Bill. I
1: grew up in a, a family of, um, and, a, and generations of active LDS people. Um, my dad growing up was the bishop's state president. My dad's 85 years old right now and functions at a very high level. Um, I have a, um, he's been a state president mission president. I have a couple brothers that have been state presidents and one that served as a mission president. So a really pretty traditional Orthodox family, multiple generation family. Um, probably one of the most defining events of my childhood, though, was when my oldest brother, who I love, um, chose to leave the Mormon church as a 20-year-old ish and, um, and was baptized in another Christian church. And I remember being a teenager, seeing uh, my parents wrestle with that but at the day of his baptism into another christian church my dad the stake president walked you know walked us all into that wonderful christian church in downtown salt lake and we witnessed my brother's baptism into this other christian church and that to me was the most important thing my parents ever taught me we had family night and scripture study and all the things that families do but i somehow connected the dots that here it is the stake president with an oldest son He's sending all these kids on missions, but his oldest son, who he loves and I love, chose a different path, and he's got impressionable younger children in the home, and he brought all of us at a younger impressionable age, quote, unquote, to this baptism, and, and it was probably one of the most important events in my life to see true Christianity and see him love first his family and do everything he could to keep his family together. So it was a pretty orthodox family, but it is a family that at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, love and family was first.
0: So so you come from what you would call an orthodox background, but but from a family that would put the individual kind of ahead of whatever lines we th- we think exist, right? Yeah, very
1: much so. And so it was, a, it was probably a healthy way for me to think um, and help me understand the doctrine of the church, especially love. Um, that's, I believe is a doctrine of the church and perhaps one of the most important doctrines of the church. And sometimes we forget about that doctrine and we go straight to rules and commandments. And they didn't in that case. They just said, we're going to love our child first and walk with him and support him. And he's never walked away from the family. The lessons, the, the blessings of that decision have been immense just with the wonderful relationships we all have as a family and how close that brother is, you know, in his late fifties to my entire family.
0: Yeah, I was just I was just in a lesson Sunday where I shared a quote from I believe the general authority is S. Dilworth Young. I think he was a member of the seventy. And and he makes the he makes the comment that if there's ever a discrepancy between what the Spirit tells you and the program of the church, go with the Spirit, which I think is just a beautiful quote, and it's obvious that you live by that as I'm as I'm you know, reading about you in this blog post by jana Reese, and as I've seen some of the things you've you've done in social media over the last month or two, where I've really just seen your you become more prominent in in kind of sharing this inclusive loving perspective you You share this experience with your dad and your brother early on i'm I'm curious now that you've that I'm seeing you in this place of inclusiveness and christ like love. I'm wondering what other experiences you've had in your life that have kind of shaped you to to this point where you're you're being a little more public um, and having kind of this stance of of wanting to really help those, whether they be LGBT folks or whether they be folks with with really serious doubts in the church. What what other things have happened along uh, along your life that have that have helped you come to this place?
1: Well, a couple thoughts on that. I hope I remember both of them as <laughs> I'm thinking about them. The first one is I noticed I was different um, than some of my wonderful Mormon brothers and sisters on my mission in England. I was a, I was, and still am a deeply committed Mormon, but on those doorsteps, we did a lot of door knocking in northern England. I would find it easy to sort of listen to other people talk about their religion and what they believed and how they felt. And um, it never you know, made me want to believe less in Mormonism. But my companions would often tease me, but you're gonna get converted. You're you you know, you sort of are find it easy to listen to them. And I've I never got converted and I've walked a lot of people into Mormonism that I believed in. But I've just learned, Bill, early on, I was just wired to be able to sort of listen to other people, learn from other people and not sort of have to get emotionally activated when somebody um said something that was different than my belief, sort of my ability to empathize and understand and give them permission to feel differently and not be threatened by that is something that I've noticed about me. Maybe the first evidence that was that back in my mission. And that's going way back there in 1980 in Northern England. Um But nothing really dramatic. You know, there's things like black lives matter and I don't know if we want to go very political here, but there's something about my brain that allows me to be a black teenager Driving in a car at night, and and the fear that I would feel if I were a black teenager versus me, a 55 year old white guy in a nice car. I just recognize that my life would be different, and I would feel different. And I'm not trying to do go too political here, but it's just a, an understanding that I can sort of walk in other people's shoes and know how they feel. So I have great empathy for black male teenagers and perhaps what they might face, even though at times they make mistakes too. Um, but nothing really dramatic. I think one of the second parts of my answer to your question is um, is when I became a bishop i I just defined I'm partly retired and have only one son at home, so I have a lot of time and I decided that I would define my ministry and my assignment as not just the kids that reach out to me and get on my calendar through working through an executive secretary that's you know, a fine way to work. And most bishops work that way. But I also, and a lot of bishops do this, I just thought, I'm going to proactively reach out to kids um, because of my connection on social media and and try to get them to meet with me or just start interacting with them with just softball messages so they could trust me. And so maybe 80, 90 percent of the kids I met with were kids that I kind of had a connection to and would get them to meet with me without going through an executive secretary. That would eliminate a lot of the kids i just lose a lot of kids if i went through that process and so i and then i found that my calendar was just filling up because i made myself available and i'm not trying to toot my own horn here in doing this but just sort of give some background on my ministry is i would serve you know monday through thursday night often starting at five o'clock and friday and saturday afternoons and sunday and i just had time And I just decided all I was going to do is spend one-on-one time with the kids and let my counselors sort of be the operational bishops and run the ward. So they ran the ward, they did everything, and I just met with kids. And I think one of the things that because of the volume of interviews I did, I just started to um, not question you know, some of the things I've been taught, but just sort of feel firsthand for these kids and some of the complex issues that they were dealing with and sort of get direct inspiration from Heavenly Father on how to help them not sort of rely on maybe some of the biases i came to the job with when you meet you know 150 200 kids that have you know broken the law of chastity with intercourse or oral sex you sort of you have a a volume of kids you meet with and you sort of get a feeling for their goodness of their hearts the pureness of their soul and just that sin sometimes is you know not you know sometimes sin is not core to them it's something that perhaps is above the waterline of an iceberg and And you start to deal with things on a very individual basis versus just a cookie-cutter approach because of the volume of kids you deal with. So I think to answer the second part of your question, if I'm making sense, is just the volume of interviews I did and the different categories these kids are struggling with, whether it's worthiness issues or pornography or faith crisis issues or LGBT issues or all the different issues kids are dealing with, just the volume of stuff. and, And Heavenly Father sort of talking to me helped me to sort of I think understand, you know, you know, what Heavenly Father want these kids to hear and how to help them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate hearing that. I, I think what you're speaking to is this idea that once you step out of your own shoes and, and have to interact with other people who have different perspectives or different experiences, suddenly you realize that some of the assumptions you've kind of set up about why we do the things we do or you know, the reasons we make up in our mind why certain things happen, those tend to kind of fall by the wayside and we begin to realize that, that people are just people and, and, and we're all just trying to live our life the best we can and that things just don't always go the way we, we'd hoped they would. And, and as we encounter challenges, I, I want to speak for a second to this idea of, of, of you sitting down with these kids. I mean, you, you come off as very LGBT inclusive friendly. You come off as very, Doubt inclusive and friendly. And those are two issues in the church today that there's so little safe space. And forgive me if I get emotional here. Cause, ah, uh, I, I'm one of these folks who's, I'm, I'm tough enough skinned that on Sunday in the three hour block, if says someone says something that's offensive and wrong, I'll stand my ground and I'll push back. But there's a lot of folks right now, Richard, who who are walking away from the church because there's not that safe space and they don't feel they don't feel comfortable enough to to push against that and to stay in spite of that resistance. And I was just in a lesson two weeks ago where we're talking about eternal families, and, and this high priest sitting to the left of me makes a joke. He says, Yeah, you know, you can be a dad today and a mom tomorrow, and I think, man, how how ignorant is that that we don't understand how complex these issues are. And they really are complex. Like like we want to just sit back and say gender is eternal and that you know women have women traits and men have men traits and people who have doubts are just lazy and wanting to sin. And yet, as Elder Ukdorf has said, it's not that simple. I'm curious as you've as you've been outspoken and wrapped your arms around these kids, and you've tried to let them know that you're not going to judge these things, you're just going to love them. I'm curious some of the things that you've learned and also how that's been received by these young people and as they've seen you as a safe space.
1: Um, yeah, you're talking my language, Bill, um, because my heart breaks sometimes for the pain that's in our, and these kids and sometimes in our Mormon culture. And my wife says to me, you have the heart of a woman. <laughs> and I thought about that for a while. And I think, and I decided that's a great compliment she's given me and, it's probably a stereotype that women have kinder, more gentle hearts than men, because obviously lots of men have that. But I'm wired to feel with my heart and can walk where these kids are and put myself in their shoes and feel their pain. And and most of the kids just need someone to you, – you've got to create an environment, as you know, and many bishops know, where it's just completely trusting and completely loving – and as they start to talk about things that are hard for them, you validate how they feel. And you ask follow-up questions to make sure you know how they f- feel. And you take notes, and you ho- and you hold back on your urge to teach or prescribe or suggest. And, boy, for the first part of those tender interviews, my job as a bishop, I believe, is to do a lot of listening and make sure I really, really understand how someone feels. Those sweet people that open up with confession stuff, I just tell them, when they start to do that, that they're heroes in my eyes for having the guts to come in. You look them in the eye. You don't look down. You don't shame them. You just tell them that they're heroic for coming in and having the guts to talk to you, whether it's sin stuff or faith journey stuff or, um, concerns about this or that, that they're, so you have to validate first that they're just willing to talk. Cause you're right in our Mormon culture. It's kind of hard sometimes for people to talk if it's not consistent with what the narrative is or the testimony road is. I sometimes feel like, of my 300 kids, that about 30% sort of fit the mold or just fit the culture perfectly and do everything in the right order and and have the right sort of everything in order. And there's another 70% that don't, and maybe 80% of that 70% actually wants to be in the church, they actually believe in the church, but for one reason or another, they don't quite fit the mold. And so they just, whether it's commandment issues or faith issues or this or that issue, they actually want to fit in they just can't quite make it work because of the culture um is hard for them just to feel loved and accepted
0: do you, do you feel like i know that you provide like a safe space i can just i can tell that i can tell that by watching some of the things you say by reading some of the you know the article for, again from Jana as i've gotten to kind of know you from the outside looking at what you're doing it's obvious that you're providing the safe space for these kids. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are because because as you're gathering, I mean, church history is really messy. Being a gay Latter-day Saint is so tough. And in, in these two issues, if, if you don't have that safe space, there's way more pressure pushing you out than encouragement to stay in. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Besides you and me, like if all bishops could a, adopt that kind of a view and if if the church in the way it kind of frames things officially could adopt that kind of a view, your thoughts on our chances of keeping these kids rather than them walking out and, and not coming back?
1: A um, couple thoughts on that is the policy statements as I've been in my Facebook posts have uh, been pretty open with that, but those have been hard for me. Um, I think of... A great percentage of our members rightly so process that in their head and, and were thoughtful about it and felt the prophet had spoken. But there's another group of members and I fell into that group where it just kind of hit me in my, in my heart and in my gut. And I just felt the pain, the personal pain because I could feel the pain of the LGBT community. And for the policy statements that I support the doctrine of traditional marriage, I support our prophet. I have both feet in the church, but I recognize that that statement brought significant pain into my, um lgbt friends i didn't have a lot at the time, but I just felt um, I wanted to understand their pain so after the November statements, I proactively sought out my gay friends and would and met with them and just wanted to understand how they felt. most of those really were not in my ward, <laughs> most of them were just connections through social media and high school friends and this or that friend and it was a it was um an eye-opening experience for them because I sort of just wanted to go into those meetings deprogrammed of any biases that anybody or any organization had brought to me. And I just, as I met with my those LGBT friends, I just felt goodness. I felt contributor people to society. Some were, you know, celibate and aligned with the church, but some were in same-sex relationships. And I universally felt goodness and kindness and love and I was not threatened by them. Um I didn't feel that they were doing anything to change um the doctrine of the church or the mission of the church. I didn't feel that their lifestyle was infringing on any religious liberties that I have. Some may be, but the ones I met with, you know, were not that way. And so it was sort of an awakening to me that this group is a wonderful group of people, some of Heavenly Father's very best sons and daughters um a fellow gay friend told me the story of Esther the other day, and Esther, as you know, and many people in the church know, and if I get this right, was really a coming out story, as she was the Jewish wife of a, of someone, I've forgotten his name, who wanted to go to war with the Jews, but then he realized his own wife was Jewish. It was kind of a coming out of, for her, to understand the Jewish people were not someone he wanted to go to war with. And that's the way I feel about my LGBT, LGBT brothers and sisters, that they're wonderful. And they're some of God's very best. And and because of my Facebook ministry to sort of openly love them, uh, mo- I've had many reach out to me and want to meet and want to talk. And I've enjoyed those meetings. <clears throat> and it's further kind of crystallized my love for them and and that they are some of Heavenly Father's very best. So that's a little bit about um, how I've connected to the LGBT community and how I've become an LGBT ally. And and want to do all I can to continue to minister to that group. And they are some of the very best men and women that I know. And I'm, I, I believe our, our doctrine is true. I believe our church is a, not a perfect product yet. It's a work in process. And <clears throat> I believe as our brethren, as we work as, sorry, I'm losing my voice, Bill, <clears throat> but I believe as we work as a church, we'll find a better place for our LGBT friends to feel comfortable in our congregations. I've always felt that there should be no belief hurdle or behavior hurdle to feel comfortable in a congregation. That's certainly needed for the temple, but I think Christ's ministry was really about how to treat each other and how to love each other. That was really what I think he was trying to accomplish in addition to the atonement and setting up the, the priesthood keys in the church, but it was really to help us teach how to love people and and I think there's many in the church, including our senior leaders, that want to figure out how to do that and want to have everybody that wants to be in our congregations um, feel comfortable in our congregations, whether they're working on their faith journeys or in the LGBT community or <clears throat> having significant issues, keeping all the commandments or are all tatted up, um, that they feel church attendance is a safe place for them. So that's some thoughts on that. Just to comment on... One of the things that social media has allowed me to do, as you understand is, and I'm sure this happens to you and others, is I get a lot of private Facebook messages from people I don't know. And I accept those messages, read them, and they're just fascinating as I've become a safe spot for anybody to talk to because of my Facebook ministry. And um, I'm sure that happens for you in in spades, but it's some of these people I've then been willing to meet with, um, not as a bishop, but just somebody that they can trust as sort of a both feet in the church LDS guy that they want to talk to. And and it's been fascinating to talk to more of my LGBT friends in that setting. And one of the sweetest experiences that I'm having right now is give priesthood blessings to that group. Um, I do that a lot with my YSAs. It's really part of my ministry. I've probably given over 1,500 priesthood blessings to that group. But I've, you know, Heavenly Father wants everybody to be blessed, and I feel like the priesthood I hold is can be used to bless all of His children. But, and I share that in pretty tenderness. That some of the blessings, the blessings I've given to the LGBT community, have some been some of the most spiritual experiences I've ever felt. As just I felt God's love for them, and I felt they're some of His very best and most tender spirits, and how He loves them and accepts them, and and He, you know, that's part of their life mission to be born this way is with um, same-sex attraction or however they're born within the LGBT community, and they have a unique mission. They still have agency and the ability to make choices, but he loves them. And they were born with a specific plan. I use the term born perfect, which is something i picked up from some of my friends, and it's the idea that God doesn't make mistakes, that we're all born the way we're meant to be born. And it still keeps agency on the table, and it keeps um, the need to do its right on the table, but it sure creates a healthier A mental attitude and that we don't need to pray away our sexual orientation we don't need to go to therapy to change that but we're this way because God loves us and it certainly creates a safer spot for that but I certainly as I've met with my friends in this world and have given them priesthood blessings I felt the same thing
0: yeah I I love I love how you talk about these folks being the best folks I mean these these are just really good people and and I totally agree with you if we go back 10 years ago, I would have held this very orthodox view of LGBT individuals. <clears throat> I would have I would have continued in some of these judgments and I don't know what clicked, but just one day the light bulb just went on and I realized that differences in their differences and their and and the challenge that the the world gives them to some extent is just very different than anything that I could speak to without better understanding them and And, as you speak about these these people being good people it it just what comes to my mind is that these folks have great gifts they've got great gifts that they that they offer to the world and to the church specifically and and like you, I'm trying to stay in, I'm trying to be both feet in and and be a believer. but my struggle and and, and I'll hopefully I don't go on too long trying to explain this. But my struggle is that LDS theology has, has framed itself in a way that says that for our heterosexual brothers and sisters, the plan of salvation involves you finding someone of the opposite gender, getting sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, having children, and, and that is what gets you back to Heavenly Father. That's one of the boxes we have to check. And, and for our LGBT brothers and sisters, the plan of salvation to them is you have to stay single. You have to stay alone. You can't hold someone's hand. You can't have any kind of romantic relationship, any kind of connection with somebody on that deeper level. And I remember I was actually being interviewed on another podcast, and the, the interviewer asked me, he said, Bill, if, if your state president came to you and asked you to live the rest of your life celibate and alone, could you do it? And it was the first time I ever just had to consider that thought and and I didn't have an answer I couldn't just blatantly say yes I could I couldn't do that I I f- I finally realized I think this moment where what we're asking of our LGBT brothers and sisters is really something really tough that that we don't ask of of our heterosexual brothers and sisters in the church and and I and I don't want to get too far off into the the weeds here but I do want to ask you maybe a, a surface level question which is you know can can one can one support and believe in the doctrine while at the same time hope and pray that we find some way in our theology, some way in our doctrine to both hold the uniqueness that makes us Mormon, while at the same time creating some space in our theology that that these folks who have great gifts to offer can be who God made them to be and still participate and be and be active members of the church. I assume that's something that you hope for. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on whether you think that we can hopefully someday get there.
1: It's a good question. It's a question that you and others have been working on longer than I have. I've been working on it about a year in my brain, the very same question. And I know a lot smarter people have been working on it longer. But And so I don't know the answer to that. I, do, I have a couple thoughts, though. Um, I do think we're in... The early chapters of a longer book, so to speak, on how um, the gospel of Jesus Christ administered through the church I believe in is working to love and accept our LGBT brothers and sisters. So I would hope when I'm an older man, if I reopen this book, so to speak, I will see chapters that make me happy or that we have found a way to love and accept and Uh, you know, our LGBT brothers and sisters. Now, how that's going to happen, I don't know. I have great faith that, you know, God um, is sending these wonderful spirits to us and he's causing them to cause us to stretch individually like I'm doing and you're doing and others. And as a church, as we're trying to figure out um, how to do a better job of creating space. So I don't have the answers. I just share the same hope. I don't I'm not out there ch- hope advocating that the doctrine of the church changes. That's um I am sure comfortable that we can start first with love. I think sometimes when we see a uh, an LGBT brother or sister we go straight to well are they acting on it? <laughs> we don't say that for our single, you know, brothers and sisters. And so I think we do go we're a little biased to go t- quickly to doctrine when we look at people that perhaps are different than us. And I, I go back to, you know, what Christ really taught in his ministry and what the great commandment is to love one another. And so I think we can do a better job of loving everybody first and accepting everybody into our congregations and creating a safe spot there for everybody. Now, the next steps beyond that, <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure. I just hope that when I read later chapters in this book, Bill, that I'll see, wow, we've really come a long ways and we've... Created a way for um everybody to be loved and accepted in our congregations and maybe broadly in our theology,
0: yeah yeah beautiful i uh I'm curious, as you've now been more public over the last few months ha- have you gotten any pushback from from those around you, whether it be lay members, whether it be leadership above you has anybody has anybody you know asked you to kind of settle down or not be so public with with your inclusiveness
1: um that's a really good question. I've thought a lot about that. I um very little, a couple a couple comments from um people my age, not necessarily leaders. Um I think that there's obviously a concern that perhaps what I'm doing is not completely consistent with what the brethren are teaching right now or the doctrine of the church, but I don't feel a conflict there because I'm I'm not trying to change the doctrine of the church or um override anything that's present in the church just trying to create a feeling we should love and accept everybody and these are some of heavenly father's very best Um, but i assume that maybe there's been some of that with people behind the scenes a little concerned about some of the things i'm posting i sense i've wondered in my own congregation if there's members of my own congregation that are a little worried about their very own bishop Uh, but i haven't felt anything from my congregation i have people comment all the time on how grateful their congregate our congregation is because it seems so loving and accepting to everybody and there seems to be a theme within our congregation i have been released of just loving everybody um, no matter where they come from and what their station is so but i bet there's been some of that and i um and so i'm aware of that and i've kind of decided in my mind that i'm going to try to do in my social media ministry what i think heavenly father wants me to do and what i Think is a way to minister to his sons and daughters, <clears throat> realizing at times that may be uncomfortable some people that I love and respect and look up to,
0: yeah, yeah, um kind of maybe heading towards wrapping up here i we haven't talked a whole lot about doubt <clears throat> the The church over the last few years has said both publicly as well as showed it in their actions that they're trying to be more transparent. I still think we have a long ways to go. I still think we're framing things in the best light possible, but that reality and the data still takes us just a little further into the messiness. Your Maybe some of your specific thoughts as you've sat down with people who, for them, it just isn't adding up, and and they're struggling with that. Any specific thoughts on doubt in, in, in the church yeah. right
1: now? You know, I didn't. Good question, Bill. And three years ago, I probably wouldn't have any idea that any of this was going on. And I just gave simple answers to the people that were leaving the church or having doubt, and I need to repent of all of that. Um, I've just, as I've met with wonderful, committed, you know, LDS kids that have doubts, I've just felt their sincerity, I felt their testimony, I felt their wrestling and doing all of the things that we teach them to do to overcome doubt, and they still have doubt. And so I've just sort of done a paradigm shift in my mind that realizing that this is the path for some of Heavenly Father's very best sons and daughters, is to go through um, periods of time where they doubt. And we need to sort of normalize that um, embrace it for some and not, as you understand, and many do, not sort of give them simple answers or question their sincerity or um, and just, boy, make it much more transparent in our Mormon culture to have people be able to openly talk about their doubt um, and feel like there's a community around them that loves them and supports them and gives them permission to doubt and doesn't sort of judge them for doubting. Um, there are wonderful people, as you know, that are doubting. There's lots of reasons they're doubting. There's mess, messy issues in the history of the church. There's current things in our current culture that are uncomfortable people. And so I think it's just part of um, a, a, a difficult time that a lot of people are going through that can be very healthy in the long run. If we help wonderful people with doubt, you know, understand that they're wonderful and it may be part of the plan for them to doubt and it may make them stronger in the long run. And they may help others with doubts because they've had their own doubts and it may just be something that's very, very healthy for them. But it's emotionally traumatic, as you and many others know, and to have a community around them that is not sensitive to that emotional trauma they're feeling is everything sort of potentially crumbles around them, just adds to their load. <clears throat> and they need people sort of on their side of the table walking with them and understanding and validating and helping them um, feel that they're loved as they walk through these periods of doubt. We certainly have a feeling of absoluteness and finality in our culture at times where it's, I know with every fiber of my being and it's absolutes and Boy, for a lot of people that's true, but for a lot of people there's a lot of gray. And if they don't feel sort of like the the traditional narrative, they feel like something's different about them, or they don't belong, and so they walk right out of Mormonism. And um, boy, there's a lot of people walking out of Mormonism right now for because I think they just it's painful for them to be in Mormonism with doubts, and they don't feel um, permission to sort of be on this road and have people walking with them. So that's some thoughts about doubts.
0: Yeah, you <clears throat> in this in this article with Jana Reese, uh, one of the points that you made was that I trust that they are receiving personal revelation. You uh, you say instead of being prescriptive, I often feel impressed to invite the person I'm meeting with to d- discuss and act on their impressions to address their faith journey. I believe strongly in the principle of personal revelation and that it is unique and customized to each person. I, I was just having a conversation with my boss and another employee today at work. We were talking about the Holy Ghost and, and can people get different answers? And can can people's experiences with the Holy Ghost and the direction they feel encouraged can can those things contradict maybe the impressions another person is receiving? And and, and it feels like you're kind of speaking to that, that you trust yeah that even if these people are different than you and they 're taking a different path than you and and they they hold different ground than you do, that you honor the fact that that if they're trying their best that that Christ is interacting with them just as much as he's interacting with you
1: I'm glad you brought that up, Bill. I think at the beginning of my ministry, I was probably pretty cookery cutter and gave the traditional answers, but the volume of people I talked to just caused me to start to feel different i 'm a different bishop the last year than I was the first year and And this very idea that I'm uncomfortable sort of being prescriptive on what people should do. I've always felt my job as a bishop is to lay down principles and ideas, but to be very permiss to give permission for people to receive revelation that's very customized for them and may not be sort of down the middle of the line revelation. I'm thinking of a young man, one of the most faithful men I know, who just felt it wasn't his call to go on a mission, and he had tremendous pressure from everybody, reminding him it's a priest of duty. But as I listened to this young man talk, I just, the impressions that came into my mind was to validate his decision not to go on a mission and to keep both feet in the church, which he wanted to do and move forward. And it became clear over time why he was acting on personal revelation for him to do exactly what he's supposed to do. And I he's a hero to me because... He worked through that very difficult cultural expectation for him and sort of survived it and now is just, you know, a committed member of the church and understands more of the missing pieces. There's great myths in people's lives and missing pieces of the puzzle. And and I think Heavenly Father knows all the missing pieces, but I'm uncomfortable that me as a priesthood holder should always know what those missing pieces are or how to clear the myths. and. The longer I served, the more I didn't want to be prescriptive and didn't want to sort of give my take, but really help them to understand that they had personal revelation and to sort of empower them to receive it, even if they're in the middle of big sins or big faith, you know, issues. I think Heavenly Father's channel to them does not change based on yes or no on a faith crisis, yes or no on being LGBT, yes or no on having significant commandment issues, um, he loves them and wants to talk to them and give them personal revelation. So that's very much something I feel like I've come to better understand um, towards the end of my ministry as a bishop.
0: I, I love that you keep using this word ministry. I, I've i thought of that word often. I I know that there are probably people in the church who are really uncomfortable with what I do, and yet I've felt called to do this, to be a voice that helps validate and empathize with those who are having a hard time. and. and and to recognize that that conversation probably doesn't make our more Orthodox members comfortable. It probably makes them very uncomfortable, but, but I feel called to do it. And, and I feel just as you're calling these things that you care about your ministry, I feel like the things I'm doing are my ministry. and And I love using that word. It's, it's not a word that Mormonism I think has been real comfortable with, with people outside of the leadership saying they have a ministry, but as I look at people like you and others who are, who are reaching out to those in the margins, to me it is just a beautiful word that, that speaks of the same thing that Christ did, which was to reach out to those who, who on some way, shape or form were on the fringe of their society or of their faith. I, I want to talk for a moment about LGBT people. I want to wrap up. I've got two last questions here for you and one of them is, I, I totally get it. We, We certainly hope that our LGBT brothers and sisters, as they, as they come to us and they're, and they're trying to figure out where they belong in the church, I recognize that some of them feel, at least at any, at least at any given moment, that they can, they can do this thing the church's way, the prescribed way. But there are others who, who don't feel they can. They're, again, as you say, they're good people. They've got great gifts. They, they're among God's very best. And yet for them to have any kind of peace of heart, they have to, they feel inclined that they have to live that life. No different than, than me as a heterosexual having chosen to, to live with somebody and to be married and to, to have family. I don't want, again, I don't want to get off into the weeds, but I I do at least want to throw this question out and give you a chance to speak to it. For those LGBT members of the church who, who just cannot come to peace, living the way the church has prescribed them to live. Any thoughts from you on advice you give to those folks when they've come in to sit down with you that that both empathizes and validates them while still trying to be a believer on your end, but also to respect them and who they are on their end? If I can just be nosy, how do those kind of conversations go? Well,
1: and I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly I have very few of those in my own ward where I'm the priesthood leader, holding keys, sort of walking with them as a priesthood leader. There's been a few of those, but maybe just a handful. So most of those conversations I'm having are not me as a bishop, but just me as ministering to someone who has reached, proactively reached out to me and says, I need to talk. I need a safe adult to talk to about how I feel. And so I've had more of those kind of conversations and I, I sometimes put a couple different hats on. I, one hat I have is just my feeling about the doctrine of the church and the need to follow the doctrine of the church. But then another hat I sometimes wear, and I don't think I'm trying to walk away from the church, but I sometimes put on sort of my clinical hat or my what's best for these people, my wonderful LGBT friends emotionally. And I recognize at some level that being in a committed same sex um, physical partnership is the right path emotionally for some of my very best friends in this world. And some of them are and are living wonderful, healthy, happy, productive lives. Um, so it's something that I don't understand, Bill. I do believe at some level with my clinical emotional eyes, kind of putting my doctrinal eyes on the shelf for a second, that that is at least the path that I can, that seems to be working for some. And there's a part in my heart that can recognize that. I don't go out and encourage everybody to do that. I'm not promoting that for people, but I do recognize for those that have gone down that road that it I can see where it's the right road for them. And the, there's a part of my heart that can recognize that and be comfortable with that and supportive as they go down that road and still feel goodness about them and still see the, all the good that they do and all that they contribute to society um, as you know, and others know, they often have unique spiritual gifts and Christ-like attributes of empathy and concern. They're safe for lots of other people. And they, in my way, do a wonderful, in my eyes at times, do an incredible job of ministering to other people. So that's kind of a way of answering that question, wearing different types of hats <laughs> in different situations.
0: Yeah. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to answer that. I, I appreciate it. And I think that, that the listeners, Will will deeply value that kind of an answer, which recognizes that again, my path isn't your path, and sometimes for healthiness, for peace of mind, for for just the ultimate health of that individual going forward, they may need to make a choice that's very different than the choice I've made. And and I, and I just want to say thank you for doing that. Um, I want to wrap up with one last question and, and maybe a chance to kind of either bear testimony or. Even just to share some thoughts, but but going forward, as you talk about this book that that we're in the early chapters of, and as you as you hypothetically turn the pages to see what's in the later chapters, what are some of the things that Richard Osler hopes in
1: well i'm fifty five so it's you younger guys that are going to see more of these chapters, <laughs> but I do hope you know if I could you know walk into a Mormon congregation in five or ten years that I would see um just everybody being loved and accepted. In our congregation and where I serve, we've got a young man who joined the church with 28 tattoos. I've talked about him on my Facebook page. He's an incredible young man. Um, he gets mean mugged at times for his tattoos, but most of us can see way past that and see the incredible man he is. So I hope that our congregations and our hearts um, can accept and love everybody and that You know, loving people is no threat to doctrine. It's no threat to the institution of the church. It's no threat to religious liberties, in my opinion. We can love everybody and accept everybody in our society as a whole, in our congregations in particular, um, without compromising or watering down any of the doctrine of the church. So I hope in the future chapters, just kind of this way of thinking that, you know, I as a member of the church can embrace and love everybody. And it doesn't mean I'm selling the church out or not consistent with the doctrine. I think it is the doctrine of our church, and it is the ministry of Christ. And then there's the time to stand for doctrine. And certainly when it comes time to decide who goes to the temple, I think that's a a situation where there needs to be a belief requirement and a behavior requirement to go to the temple. Um, And there's other times to stand for doctrine. If I'm a bishop and standing in judgment for someone in my ward, and that's tender situation, I need to stand for doctrine. Um as well as stand for very much of a lot of love. But most of the time, I think we can just stand for love and love and accept everybody. Very few people really have to stand in judgment of other people. A bishop does at times, but even a bishop doesn't need to do that very often, Um, maybe in a church disciplinary situation or in a tender counseling moment. But most of us just can stand for love and acceptance. And so that's what I hope, in, going back to this book, that is in, you know, the earlier, ch- some of the more, Closer chapters is that we just learn to do that better. Um, it's not that our church members are broken or naive or need to be fixed. It's just kind of a different way of thinking, a mature way of thinking. And obviously people understand things a lot better than I do, but that's certainly something I think we can all do. And, and I'm open to, in this wonderful church of ours, receiving further revelation. And so I hope in some later chapters we receive further revelation. I don't want to infer what I think that revelation should be or where it should go, but I hope that there is further revelation that's received by um, the wonderful leaders that I sustain, some of the best men on the planet, to understand better how to how to have the 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 go- the church that represents the gospel of Jesus Christ work for everybody better. So those I don't know what those chapters will look like, Bill, but I I'm excited to see them someday.
0: I'll I'll tell you, Richard, I am I'm optimistic that if the church calls a lot more leaders like you those those later chapters are going to be quite beautiful. Um, Richard Osler, thank you so much for being on today. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you do. And I look forward to seeing all the things that uh, that that you'll continue to be doing, and and just to watch your involvement out there within Mormonism. Thank you so much for being on.
1: Thank you, Bill.